Welcome to our podcast, We're Not So Different. I'm Samira. And I'm Ali. We're two professionals having real conversations about our experiences at home, work, and out in the community. We tell our stories through the lens of our different backgrounds to just find out that we're not so different. In our podcast, we'll explore ways that we can improve engagement and bridge social gaps while trying to find the humor in it all. Check us out on social media at WNSDifferent or email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of We're Not So Different podcast. I'm Samira here with my co-host, Ali, and today we have a very special guest with you. Her name is Jasmine Falk Dickerson, and she is the podcast host of I Want You to Meet. So definitely go check out her podcast as well, where she brings a lot of different people from different walks of life and introduces you to their story and their background. It's really insightful and I really appreciate the work that she does. And she has agreed to come on our podcast today to talk to us about Middle Eastern understanding and woman issues in the Middle East. So Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, first of all, Samira and Ali, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here today to chat with you and podcasters unite, right? Yep. Um, well, so I was born in Saudi Arabia um, in the early 70s, and um, I am a byproduct of two very different cultural uh, backgrounds. My mom is Italian from Florence and my father is from Saudi Arabia. Uh, without going into deep details of how that came about, basically my dad was a student in Italy in the uh, early 1960s, met my mom as students, fell in love, and then the rest is history. Um, but I was born in Saudi Arabia right at the cusp of major uh, political as well as uh, religious and cultural changes. Um, and so I witnessed a lot of the radicalization of the culture, uh, the confusion between both religion and kind of cultural practices uh, colliding and producing this really bizarre way of um, approaching uh, society as a whole and women specifically. And so you can imagine that with kind of a background as a uh, part, part European uh, person, and especially as I got into my adolescence, how hard that was for me, um, especially coming from an intellectual family with liberal views. Um, so I kind of slowly in my mind realized that I had to do something about this. And so I did leave in my mid twenties, um, didn't leave on easy terms or uh, even honestly disclosing to my family what my plan was, but I kind of plotted a, a very uh, specific escape um, and, uh, and immigrated here to the United States in 1999. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the background of who I am and why I am here today and, and passionate about the things I'm passionate about. That's awesome. I, I kind of feel like that could be its whole ep a whole episode on its own, your escape. That's kind of intriguing me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, can you tell us some of the things, misconceptions that people have about the Middle East that, um, you know, you feel like it's important for them to know and understand? Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. So one of the big things, so when I came here, my big thing initially was, oh, I'm going to get away from it all. I'm going to start a new life. I'm not going to think about the past. I'm not going to uh, focus on trying to either heal or fix things. I just 
just wanted to have a family, to have my kids, to be able to take a dog to the park and not have to be veiled and all of that. But as time went by, and especially after 9-11, I realized that I had not only the responsibility to bring light to some of the issues that seem to be such a misconception here, but also uh, just the desperate need from certain people to know and understand more. And so I realized that there's this initially, just like let's go down to the basics, there's this like really strong um, ignorance. And I, and I use this word with, with compassion. I don't use this with, with uh, judgment. But there's mm -hmm. a, a great degree of ignorance that the Middle East is this monolithic, you know, uh, entity and that it is to be treated all the same and viewed the same and all the women in the Middle East are victims and uh, and how completely not only wrong but what a disservice that does to the entire region because the Middle East is basically a geographic region and so when you talk about the Middle East you're talking about the geographic region and then when you talk about Arabs you're talking about a group of people that are tied by language so it's a linguistic high. Mm -hmm. And then when you talk about Islam, you're speaking specifically about religion. And Islam is all over the world. It's not a geographic region and it's not tied by religion. Uh, I'm sorry, by, by language, certainly by religion. And so when you understand the basics of that, you can then begin to understand who the people are and why you know, certain practices are in certain areas and not others. And, and so part of the work that I do is to try to help people understand that in depth. Was part of that what prompted you to start your podcast with an emphasis on the Middle East? And then conversely, where did the emphasis specifically on women come in? Yeah, so my podcast actually uh, is an even uh, deeper explosion of that. So initially, when I started doing more of the work that was focused on the Middle East, it was more, I, I still do like speaking gigs. I go to colleges and um, like guest speaker, um, mainly sociology classes or history classes or, or um, classes that focus on social justice. I am currently in the master's program studying public administration, focusing on equity and social justice. And so my personal work has been very focused on justice in the Middle East and women because that's my story. But my podcast is actually focused on all walks of life, all kinds of stories, because what I realized as I spoke to people is the common thread that we all share is that we just want people to know who we are and understand us. And so the podcast has different stories. I have musicians, I have activists, I have people who are into self-care. It's, it's just these awesome stories of people that have done amazing things with themselves because they value their story, their journey, and so they want to connect with others. Um, but but the, uh, the common thread, I think, of all that is my story, which is, this is my background. I want you to understand who I am, and therefore I want to understand who you are. And because the world right now, especially our country, is so out of balance in terms of being able to really find a, a common thread that we share, the more we talk about each other and the more we listen to each other, I think we're hopefully going in the right direction. Yeah. I agree. That's kind of why we started our podcast is that, and why we call it, we're not so different. Absolutely. We, there are some intrinsic needs that we have as people and as communities. And the more we learn about each other and the more we understand each other's backgrounds and our stories, the more we realize we have so much more in common than we have differences. And those differences is what's um, being used to divide us. 
hundred percent. They're really not as critical or as much that they don't hold as much weight as the other things that do matter in our lives. Um, so I, I, I love that you're doing that work. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the more specific things about, um, you know, understanding the Middle East that helps people distinguish the differences or what are, what are some things that people from the Middle East, from your perspective, uh, you know, want others to understand and you can give us the Saudi Arabian version or um, <laughs> whatever else version that you may know. Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. So, uh, so I, I started off by talking about the ge geography and the language and the religion. So those are like the main aspects of the region. But then this other understanding of um, ethnicity and race, I can't even explain to you or describe to you how completely multi-ethnic and multi-racial the region is. It really looks a lot like the United States in terms of what backgrounds people uh, have. So even in Saudi Arabia, even though like the pure Arabs, if you will, whatever that is, right? Um, even though those Arabs are uh, the, the majority in the region, there are, through pilgrimage, you know, people from Africa, people from Asia, people from all walks of life, from Europe, from all walks of life that have also uh, for generations remained in the region and in the area. And so I think sometimes it's surprising when people think of Middle East, that they think of this one specific looking human. And it's so wrong. I mean, it's such a, I mean, we do it. It's, it's, we do it all the time with all kinds of nationalities and all kinds of uh, races. And, and by the way, race, I use that word because it's a word people understand, but it's such a wrong word because it's, it, we know for a fact it's a completely man-made uh, invention. Um, and so with that comes this, this misunderstanding of how to categorize people. So when people think of you know, there are blonde, blue-eyed Arabs, believe it or not. You know, there are black Arabs, believe it or not. And these are Arabs because of the cultural, um, historic, whether it was trade, whether it was religion, and unfortunately, even things like slavery and, and other um, practices that have... Um, a, a really ugly history that today we're pretending didn't happen or we're sort of sweeping it under the rug. And so the first thing I want people to understand is there is no one view that you can have that will put everyone under one umbrella. You can't make those assumptions because believe it or not, other religions do exist in the Middle East. And now, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, it is the most conservative country in the world. It is the most oppressive country in the world. And while we're hearing in the news now that things are changing, it's one thing when you change the, the exterior of it, and it's another when you change the intellect of it. And um, so as, as we continue to talk today, I'm sure that we're going to kind of uncover some of those pieces um, and, and the more we talk about women. So that's kind of to give you a general overview. Well, why don't we go ahead and dive into that then and start talking about the women and um, some of those pieces? Let's do it. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm super passionate about women's issues. Um, women in the Middle East, I can safely say, can be categorized into three categories. You have the conservative women that are extremely attached to those practices and good for them. They are allowed, they, they ought to be allowed to be proud uh, without shame. And then you have women who are super liberal and ready for major change. And I can you know, say that I belong to that category. And then you have women in the middle who have somewhat made their peace between uh, what the culture has provided for them and served them. And while that is something that sometimes can be a burden, they also recognize that there is uh, benefits in 
progress. And so those would be the three categories. And I do want to quote um, Rima Khalaf, uh, who is um, the executive secretary for UN Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. And she said that we are celebrating today the many achievements of Arab women in science, literature, and arts, but primarily in the art of survival. And that is a huge, huge quote for me because it really talks about what Arab women have been through, what Arab women continue to go through, and what Arab women still need to achieve. They are smart women, they're educated women, even those who have not been in traditional education or school have an education of just their sheer survival uh, abilities that have led them to have fine-tuned some unbelievable resilience uh, gifts as women. And so, um, I think the two things that really damage and harm women in the region is the secretiveness of the region, especially Arab countries, especially the Gulf region where Saudi Arabia and, and the coupling, uh, couple neighboring uh, countries are, where there's this secretive thing that really no one from the outside can break into and find out what human rights are being violated here mm -hmm. and who's paying attention. And the second thing is the pride paired with the shame. So a lot of Arab women are proud of their heritage, they're proud of who they are, they're even proud of their religion and conservatism, but they're also ashamed to be themselves and to speak up and to have a voice because that's how they've been basically you know, bred and trained and, and it, it remains. And even women who break away from that, it takes a lot to undo that shame. You know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, Sometimes I think in the United States, we tend to obviously have a healthy ignorance of the outside world. Um, a lot of that do just simply due to education, right? Like most countries, you know, in elementary school, for example, children are taught two and three languages in the U.S. That's not really the case, right? So there's a, mm -hmm. this, this um, I guess, entitled way of saying because we are different or have established ourselves as being different, we therefore don't need to learn about the rest of the world. But conversely, you're talking about something existing in Saudi Arabia, in the Gulf, and in a, a few other countries around the world where they, they have that insular sort of uh, existence, if you will, where they are hiding themselves from the rest of the world or don't want mm -hmm. interference of the outside world. And we tend to think that technology sort of breaks down some of those barriers, um, but I'm not sure that it does. And so my question was leading more into you know, if, if technology cannot break that barrier, how long can these countries exist in this siloed way of doing things where they try to hide things both from the external world and hide the folks living there from the external world to understand that there are places that exist or ways, that, ways in which people culturally, um, at least better than those countries themselves, celebrate women, give them opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Like how do you, when does that tide start to shift? Has it shifted at all? I mean, you talked about there's that liberal set, right? But mm -hmm. you know, does that happen without major revolution? Or does that happen without some catastrophic event where, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, internal revolution or external war, what, what have you, where you see these huge shifts in regimes and cultures, those sorts of things, like what's the catalyst for that? Okay, I love that question. And I don't know that anyone's ever worded it with that 
amount of background because it's so important to understand that. So let me start by saying this, and let's use Saudi Arabia for an example here because it's a pretty good example. Saudi Arabia has built, uh, like I'm guessing China and a few other uh, dictatorship regimes, has built this sort of internet censorship and while they have access to technology and they have access and believe me the access is abundant because of the financial kind of uh, privileges but this kind of umbrella of you can see almost everything but not really holds people hostage that's number one number two there is a declared war on freedom of speech and on intellectual freedom of speech and so you can have your thoughts, but don't ever think of expressing them. So that's the second issue within. The biggest problem, in my opinion, is the fact that the rest of the world is watching this and doing absolutely nothing. The reason why is money, because there is a benefit in having a relationship with some of these very rich countries that have something I want, you have something you, I have something you want, and it's like this, this silent uh, trade that, uh, steps over everything else that is fundamentally ethical. And so until we can really put our foot down as a culture here in America and the rest of the world and say, you know what, that is not cool. I'm not okay with that. That really goes against everything that I'm fundamentally a believer of. This will continue because only pressure for uh, attention and financial gain will get these kinds of um, governments' uh, attention and a, a response for that matter. And women are always the collateral damage in these situations, whether it is in the Middle East or in other parts of the world where women are always the primary hostages of any development and any progress. And so to answer your question is, do I see that happening? Is there hope? What's the catalyst? Well, the catalyst is for the rest of the world to say, we are not going with this. We do not accept this. Uh, just to give a quick example, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered a couple of years ago. We know he was murdered in Turkey in the uh, Saudi consulate. It is a fact. It is, even, even Saudi Arabia can't cover that now. But what were the ramifications from the world? You know, the guys who did it were, a few of them were executed in Saudi Arabia as a way to say, oh, well, they went rogue and we don't approve of this. But in, essentially, the person held responsible for this whole thing is not being held responsible. So, uh, and, and the person is essentially the, the, the government or the, the ideology of the government that says, you dare to go against me and I will show you. Now, while this was happening internally in the country and the secretiveness of that umbrella, again, whether it's Saudi Arabia or any other country in the world that's doing this, it's one thing. But when it's happening blatantly outside in the world and we are watching this and being okay with it, I don't think that's cool. Yeah, that, that's interesting, right? Because we're, we're now we're talking about the, ge the geopolitical game, right? Which is a whole nother ball of wax um, in relation to, you know, what we have, what we can provide to other nations, what they can provide to us, the Middle East being, you know, at the center of a lot of that, especially through the 70s and the 80s. Um, and even now, um, one thing that I'm curious about, though, is, you know, I was listening to one of your um, episodes and I can't remember the lady's name, but she was Asian and Muslim. And she mm -hmm. talks about yeah. her experience going to um, a, a Muslim school with a lot of Pakistanis and, and whatnot. And just even outside of 
the the cultural sort of I guess constraints or perceptions about being Muslim. I'm also concerned when I think about you know a statement that she made where she talked about specifically her imam saying if you are under threat and your mm-hmm. life is at risk, you can remove your hijab, right? And right. protect yourself. And Samir and I have talked before about places in Iran where, you know, if there is something done towards a woman from a religious or a perspective of, you know, this is my wife, certain offenses are, are taken very direly, as opposed to here when we think about forms of sexual harassment like at the job. So it's really interesting to hear and already know and understand why is it that women are are at the bottom, right? There are these moments or these places in time where men, and again, this is not exclusive to Muslim. This is just covers every aspect. Every religion is probably more about patriarchy than anything else. Why is it that, why is it that we, and I don't know if this is a question for me or for you, but why is it that we can celebrate women and put them on a pedestal in one way, but in another way, subjugate them so much so to where they can't think, speak, act, or define themselves. And you talked about Saudi Arabia being so insular. It's just one of those things that it it really confuses me. Um, And it really hurts even, even more than that when we put religion as the foundation of justifying those things, as we do, as we have with slavery and everything, every other atrocity one can think of. Yeah. But yep. Why is that the case specifically in Saudi Arabia? Would would you say, and why, and and what's backing that? That's such a good question. And while I'm not a political uh, expert, I can tell you just from social and cultural. Um, observation and just from my own personal experience, I think it all boils down to power. It all boils down to power because religion is used when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. And when it's not convenient, it's it's uh, not that it's not used, but so I'll give you an example. You, you, we're sitting here talking about women and why women are treated the way they're treated and why are they so really um, dismal to some extent. And there's a quote in um, in a religious Islamic uh, scripture quote that says that paradise or heaven is below the feet of mothers. In other words, the mothers are above everything. They're even above heaven. Like that's, that's how important they are. And that phrase alone talks about, you know, femininity, um, the feminine energy, the woman, the mother, the nurturer. It doesn't have to be a biological mother. It's just the energy of the mother. And yet, even though that's a phrase that we are taught and we recite, it's not in practice proof, right? Why? Why is that? Well, because it's not convenient to have women in power. Um, Just this country, if you think about just the history of this country, the United States, the fact that we had Barack Obama as president, which by the way, was epic and historic and phenomenally amazing a black man became president still before a woman ever became president in this country right. yeah and even though that is i'm not saying it should be a game of comparison but it just shows you to what extent we are ingrained in our minds all over the world that women are always secondary to a masculine power always and so I think that that's, it's, it's almost biological. I don't know that this is unique to Saudi Arabia or to the Middle Eastern region or to Islamic fundamentalism. I think this really is 
ingrained in our very core as human beings because of the history of the you know uh, eons that we've we've uh, documented when i when i think about that because you're right that it's not um and i don't want to e even allude to the fact that it's that it's singular to your area right because you brought up an extra sure. point um with the presidency here um and even thinking about about you know prior to that that you know during um during slavery in this country during jim crow specifically um the power that white women held over black men just when we think about for example the famous story of emmett till and oh, yeah. even you know you know years and years later the woman that was responsible for that saying that well he never said anything to me right and the power that they could essentially get you killed if they wanted to but then on the flip side of that you think about the presidency and even then the white woman is slighted over having a male in office to run. Um, and, you know, now they're, you know, you know, obviously there's celebration about, um, about Harris being in office. Sure. Can, can I, can I interrupt you real quick, Ali, yeah. and say something about that? The reason why that the white woman was um, kind of above in that, in that particular case is because her testimony was convenient for men, for white men. Her testimony was convenient for white men to exercise what they believed was their superiority to all black people, specifically black men. And so she was a convenience. She was a, she was a witness or she was a exhibit A, your honor. Right. But when it comes to actual power, when it comes to actual running the show, the fact that she has ovaries means she's incapable to mentally and emotionally run the show and even though barack obama is a half black man he still has the biological ability to run the show and be in power and that yeah. that if we want to break it down to like the whole patriarchal um toxic you know masculinity and patriarchal rule that's women white women were superior only because they were a convenience to the white men Correct. not because they were considered superior yeah no no that, that's an excellent point thanks for for bringing that out, um, you know, one thing that I'm I'm wondering about is is in the work that you're doing now, you're it seems like you're bringing that empowerment and that education specifically. Um, you know, like you said, your podcast includes everyone, but it's it's very interesting to listen to some of the stories of of the women that are on your podcast. And my question would be, you know, as as individuals like yourself do this work what do you feel along your journey has been kind of one of your greatest achievements um in relation to doing this sort of work whether it's you know the exposure of these individuals whether it's empowering folks whether it's learning or, or what have you what would you say that that has been for you I appreciate that question, and it's awfully generous of you to even allude to the fact that I'm doing work that is uh, impactful enough. I will say my biggest achievement is my sons. Uh, giving birth to sons and only sons, I don't have daughters, and thank goodness I don't have daughters because I wouldn't know how to raise a daughter outside of the model that I was raised in because it's scary. The, the free world is a scary place for a young woman, and so I put all my energy into my sons. I have three sons. My hope is that I have been able to establish in them and instill in them enough sense of justice, especially gender equality. Uh, and when I say gender equality, I mean all genders across the spectrum, uh, racial equality, 
recognizing that they have privileges that are simply because of the way they look or because of where they come from that would, should never be taken for granted and certainly never take advantage of that privilege. Uh, I can tell you that every argument in our home, anytime I'm frustrated because I have two teenagers and, and a 20-something year old, but every time there's been a moment of like uh, confrontation with them, regardless of what it was or what it is that they're doing or what they did or what I'm upset about, I always bring up the fact that if they're at the bottom of what they're doing or saying, there is a twinge of sexism and it drives them crazy. I know it does. But, you know, and I say to them, I, I know what I'm saying for you is upsetting because you see me always as this feminist that everything boils down to sexism, but it does. It really does. You don't realize it because I see how you react to your dad and I see how you react to me. I see how you react to your male professors and I see how you react to me. So there's this whole, and they think about it and they agree. They don't disagree. And the truth is, is these conversations with them, I didn't have to start having until they actually gained independent access to the internet and went out into the world. Because up until they were, you know, uh, early teens, I homeschooled them. I was always with them. We did everything together. We had our own culture, our own world, like our own uh, homeschool friends, these hippie, wonderful friends. And once they started going out in the world, I started noticing their language changed, their attitude changed. And I was like, mm-hmm, this is the world influencing you and you don't know it. The world is telling you that it's okay for you to respond this way. So I would say my biggest accomplishment and achievement is the energy I put into my sons. And second to that, I would say is... I think um, what I've really been blessed with is the desire to hear other people and the deep innate um, compassion to recognize that even in our differences, we all only want to be seen, heard, and loved. And so I think my, I would like, again, second to raising my sons, I would say that my, uh, my um, commitment to talk to people that are different from me and that perhaps dislike or even hate me because of what I represent or where I come from and still putting that aside and saying, let's talk, let me hear you out. And then being able at the end of that conversation, leave that particular uh, dialogue with them having a better understanding of where I come from or who the people that I come from represent uh, because governments are one thing and then the people are a whole other thing. And so I, I hope that answers your question. Um, so I, I like what you what you mentioned about your sons, and it definitely sounds like there's this environmental component, right? Because, I, I mean, I know this is bad to say, but I just look at education as indoctrination, depending on who doles it out um, or who's in charge of, of the system or who's yeah. teaching it. But I, I would be curious from, you mentioned, you're saying that everything is based in sexism or pointing that out to them, especially when they go into the outside world. Um, do you think that there are any elements of fear in there? Because I'm trying to think about my own upbringing in a household with two parents. Mm -hmm. And I always had a much healthier, if you will, fear of my father than I did of my mother, despite her being the one that doled out most of the ass whoopings, right? But <laughs> my, father, my father exhibited a level of control simply through sheer spirit and 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 phraseology if you will right or just words right and i and i have a nine-year-old now and i can see some of the same sort of traits um in him 
um, as I did with my own father, where that the look, right, the tone, those things exhibited, you know, a higher level of control than, than you know, uh, maybe my mother may have been able to extol, or even in, in the case of my son, his mother, be able to. So what are your thoughts about that? And, and, and I'm just thinking for my own, you know, just so I can <laughs> learn myself as raising yeah. one, because I, you know, I always reinforce, you know, you know, treat your mother, you know, with respect, make sure you do what she says. Obviously, if she tells me something, you know, that's your ass on this end too, right? <laughs> um, but how do I become a better um, supporter, if you will, mm -hmm. as I'm raising my son to not only, you know, pay attention to those things, but also to kind of, kind of reiterate that enforcement and, and, and level of respect? Yeah, great question. So I would say, I, I, I'm not going to speak on on behalf of your experience and your story, obviously, and your, your parents or your parenting style, but I can tell you that one of the biggest uh, things that I've noticed, sort of the thread of generational passing down of how parents do things, is at the end of the day, it's always wait till your dad gets home. And yeah. so we've completely built this like, oh, dad has the last word, has the last say. Well, in this house, it's wait till your mom gets home or wait till mama finds out or wait till mama, you know, in, in our home, I am the primary parent when it comes to discipline. Why? Because I'm the one that's with them the most, the majority of the time. I don't think this, the particularities of how certain things unfold in the home should be you know, uh, a gender-based thing, they, they really should be more based on the parent that is spending the majority of the time with the kid. Not because the other parent is to be dismissed. That is not at all. Because my husband and I try to really have a very unified front in terms of certain things with the kids. But if you're spending the majority of the time, I'm not coming to you like my husband with your work and interfering with how you're making money or what overtime you're taking or all that. It's like, I'm trusting you to take care of that component. I need to be trusted to take care of this component. So yeah. I think the first thing is the fact that we have this idea that dad has the last word, dad has the last say, dad is the one that's working hard, dad is tired when he comes home, you know, keep things quiet for dad, don't irritate dad. That's number one. While in reality, mom is the one that's, if, if in you know a traditional sense, mom is the one that's at home doing all of this and all of that, uh, it's exhausting. So I would say that's the first thing that we need to take out of our mental vocabulary and then, of course, our, our uh, expressive vocabulary. But th that being set aside, um, I think that kids who are raised in a home with both parents who happen to be gender-specific male and female also have the entire world outside society that shows movies and videos and, you know, uh, stories and books. That is all... In endless amounts, you know, bombarding their psyche with what a traditional family looks like, and that is bogus. That's BS, uh, and and you know, damages the modern family that is, in essence, the natural family, which can be two dads, two moms, just a mom, just a dad, non-binary parents, whatever that model is, those families who are trying to do things differently, even in a traditional male-female role family don't have enough examples and models. And so people like us who are seeing that that's A, missing in society and B, disservicing society and certainly damaging the generations to come, 
we need to do something about that. Whether it's me at home constantly bringing up, you know, uh, gender inequality or sexism to my kids, or whether it's through being more active and writing about it and speaking more about it and, and uh, even studying it and implementing it as a science. I think that's really crucial right now. And, and this can only be achieved through, you know, collaborating with other families, other backgrounds, you know, and culturally also. Some families do things very differently than, than other families just based on where they come from. You know, there's all this stereotyping of how Italian families do it, how black families do it, how Arab families do it. There's a lot of, or Asian families, there's a lot of stereotyping. But in that stereotype, there are some nuggets of wisdom that can be contributing to a holistic way of viewing the family and viewing the relationship of the child with the parent. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, really uniting with the LGBTQ community and seeing how, you know, the, the spectrum of parenting is and how raising children that are not gender uh, ingrained and gender indoctrinated really is, is of service. I mean, my sons had dolls. All three of my sons turned out to be straight uh, or so they declare and yet they played with dolls they played with pink they played with all kinds of things that stupidly in society say they only belong to girls mm -hmm. so as you're talking about um all of these ways to help reframe um how we think about sexism and gender roles and family roles and how families function i i'm a firm believer that every family and household has to function the way that's best for them. There really is no real traditional um, family because every family has different needs and, and different personalities and every person yeah. has some different strengths and we need to learn how to play to that in our own way. So I appreciate you saying that. Now going into, you know, further into how we can get involved um, and do more and be better, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about how about some of the issues more specifically that women or Middle Eastern women face and what are some ways that we can educate ourselves and help support and help make a difference for um, women overseas or even women here that may be uh, suffering and need some sort of uh, support or help? Yeah, I appreciate that question. And I love hearing it now 20 years after I heard it the first time. So 20 years ago, I was in a mom group with my baby. Um, and there was a really sweet, very young mom. I was already in my late 20s. She was probably 20, 21, really young with a sweet little boy. And I remember her asking me, what can I as a white woman do for women there? Like, what, what can I what do I need to go do? And, and I remember, even though I was very kind of distant from my background because of sort of the trauma that I had, I felt a little uh, insulted by that comment because I felt like, well, here she comes, the white savior woman, like, what do you think you have to offer to, you know, to go and interfere when these women are living their lives, many of them by choice, though those who don't choose it like me have left. And so I, I thought that was a little offensive, but 20 years later, uh, really growing, maturing and educating myself, I realize that that question is way more complex, and so I appreciate you asking it today. So some of the things that I think are crucial is recognizing that, yes, there are things we can do as a society here in America. So the first thing is definitely putting pressure on our own government not to solicit those kinds of governments until and unless they recognize that women's rights are human rights. And that if women are mistreated in those parts of the world, then that is a problem for us and we will not stand by it. And how do we do that? Of course, engaging with the people who we put in office and really 
perpetuating this ideology of human right, women rights or human rights, on and on and on. That's number one. Um, number two, I would say definitely focus on stopping the gender bias, whether it's in our own culture, because when we recognize that we are appalled by the gender bias, we're not going to accept it by anybody else's standard either. So that's, that's really important. I would say also um, investing in programs that empower and educate women, specifically women from marginalized communities. And in this case, you know, I'll put a focus on Middle Eastern women or refugee Muslim women, um, because I think that they have suffered um, what perhaps, you know, black slaves have suffered for very, very long centuries is that you don't have a voice, you need to be quiet and just stay there, like just do your role and that's it. And I think people don't recognize that some parts of the Islamic and Middle Eastern ideology still practices that with women, where it's like, by the way, um, it is said in some of the most radical interpretations of Islam that the woman's voice is a, um, uh, the word in Arabic is awra, which means, so like uh, um, a woman has to cover her body, like, you know, her privates and like all her beauty parts you have to cover those because it's provocative so a woman's voice is also considered provocative and she should be silenced you can't speak to a man or to anyone that you know uh, unless it's another woman or unless it's a male that is related to you in guardianship so there are still parts of the world that believe that that a woman's voice is a provocative sinful um, part of her that that should not be seen or, or heard in this case so really focusing on on changing some of those um specifics that are you know so outdated and so completely damaging um what happened to jamal khashoggi and i keep going back to that is is uh it's a warning sign it's happened it's going to continue to happen right now in saudi arabia for example women who were part of the 30 plus years ago uh driving um protest movement who for the past you know 30 years have really not done much activism but just sort of went on with their lives have recently been imprisoned because it was sort of like a yeah we granted permission for women to drive here but it's not because of you and so we're giving you a warning sign don't think to become an activist because this is going to be your ultimate Thing. And then the last thing I want to say is really promote and highlight Arab women. Arab women who are doing a lot of work and are extremely successful uh, have to do it in a very guarded and cautious way. And when they do it, they really need the whole world to raise them and lift them. Because trust me, when that part of the world sees that these women are successful, that they're being uh, paid attention to, and they are something to celebrate, they will allow more freedoms for women to do. So an example is the movie maker, Haifal Mansour, who has uh, you know, produced amazing movies, the first of which that really got attention was the movie Wajda of the young Saudi girl that wanted to buy a bicycle. So look that up if you haven't yet. It's truly amazing and phenomenal. And she continues to produce things like that. And then you know, I can also name many other women who I really encourage you to focus on and to think about, but they're doing amazing work. And in the general, mainstream we don't hear about them and we should no i love that you're saying that and and i never really thought of it that way um i used to be part of an organization i'm still a member of it but i was an advisor for an organization called persian women in tech 
which recently rebranded as Woman of Mena in tech. And um, it never occurred to me that all of the elevation of profiles that we were doing would help encourage um, their home countries and whatnot to actually help support them even more. So that's encouraging to hear. Thank you for sharing that. You bet, of course. So there's also, you know, you you talked about, you know, the political, the economical and political ties that we have, and encouraging, um, encouraging our government to have to not engage and build ties and 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 to to work with and and partner with these types of countries, like for example, you know, Saudi Arabia being one of the biggest ones, to your point, being the most oppressive country. Um, what are some things that we can do more and how do we give put pressure on these officials to, to do that? And what are some ways that we can get involved to make sure that those things happen? Well, I mean, elections are huge, right? I mean, we have uh, Ilhan Omar, who is a, a huge example of Muslim women here, and especially being an immigrant and, and her, just her background story being huge, and a few others also. Um, so elections are huge. Voting is huge. The other thing is remaining engaged with these officials. So once they get in office, don't forget that they're in office and celebrate the fact that they got there. Listen, Kamala Harris was my first candidate from the very beginning. I was beyond thrilled that she made it as VP. Doesn't mean I agree with everything she has done and said. It doesn't mean that I love everything about her, but I think she is a very, very strong force. And now that she is VP, I'm not just going to sit back and enjoy the glass ceiling being shattered. I'm going to really scrutinize and watch every step and every action she takes and see if she upholds her promises. So that's number one, voting and then upholding them. And then number two, um, excuse me, number two, I think uh, what we forget is education is literally the biggest weapon. I mean, Oprah Winfrey has said it, right? Had it been not for education, she wouldn't be who she is today. And as a result, have, you know, her trickle down effect, you know, changed lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans, if not millions at this point, even around the world. So education is key. What we here in this country have failed to do after 9-11 is really take advantage of the tragedy of the trauma and understand that part of the world beyond terrorism. I don't know that we have done a good job in differentiating because, and it's no different from what we've done in this country. If you watch the documentary 13th, uh, Ava DuVernay's uh, documentary, that, that shows you why systemic racism exists, where it started, how it happened, and how the word crime or criminal is very tightly associated with black men in this country. Does that mean that every black man in this country has some tendency to be a criminal? I mean, that is the biggest BS thing I've ever heard. And so the same goes for terrorism. Does it mean because you're wearing a hijab or you're wearing a turban or you're from the Middle East or you're olive skinned or whatever it is that that means you're automatically, you know, DNA uh, susceptible to be a terrorist? So I think we've, we've failed in recognizing the urgency of education and, you know, why would we, as, as a country here in the United States, think about those things when we're not educating the truth of 
this country's horrors against indigenous people and, and slavery and all that. So yeah, the Middle East is kind of a faraway thing. It's ambiguous because we don't know racially how to categorize it because again, it is not a race. There's a lot of, and, and it's also a very rich region, right? And so there's money there. So mm, do we respect them because they're rich or do we put them in a different caste system because they're, you know, a little darker than, you know, white people. So it's the whole thing is, is such a circus and until we recognize that it is happening right before our eyes, and until we recognize that we have not addressed it and we've swept it under, under the rug and think of terrorism as something that is our enemy, uh, we're, not, we're not going to get to that point. I really appreciate that. That was a lot of really good um, perspective and a lot of really good uh, tie-in. We always advocate um, education. Again, one of the reasons we started this podcast in our IG lives was to help educate people, inform people in the capacity that we know how having guests like yourself come on to amplify your voice um, and your story. Um, it really is a disservice that we're doing to humanity by not educating and acknowledging our history and where we came from and how it started um, and just dismissing it as if it's as if it doesn't matter and it doesn't impact mm -hmm. us today. So I think those are really great points. Um, I do want to give you an opportunity to also share about your how do people find you? How do people connect with you if somebody wants to invite you to speak? Um, or you know how to find your podcast or how to contact you if you don't mind sharing some of that with our audience. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled to be in connection with anyone who wants to talk more about these things. Um, my website is jasminefalkdickerson, all one word, dot com. Um, on my website, there's ways to contact me, um, to book me for gigs, um, to obviously follow the podcast or to, um, you know, um, if they want to promote their own story, I'm, I'm happy to, to consider that and have them on, on the podcast as well to talk about things. So the, the, my website is the main way you can find me. I'm on Instagram. All of my links are on my website. So my link tree is there, um, articles, videos, anything like that. And I also wrote a book, uh, a memoir of my own journey from birth to my uh, eventual arrival in America. And the book is currently in its editorial phase and in, in its hopeful publication within the next year. So um, the current title, which I hope stays, is The Last Sandstorm. And uh, there will be information about that book on my on my website, hopefully when it is published. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to interact with people. I love hearing from people and um, I'm, I am available for the conversation to continue. Awesome. I love that. And I can't wait to read your book. So let me know <laughs> when it's out and available. Definitely. You'll get a copy for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. I am looking forward to continuing this conversation and partnering with you in really um, helping make a difference for, uh, you know, are for you your birth nation i'm i was born here but my heart is with iran and with um yes. middle eastern women all around the world uh and so uh whatever we can do to partner I would love to do that so thank you again for joining us um and thank Absolutely. you all for listening and we will talk to you soon thank you so much absolutely thank you for listening to another episode of we're not so different podcast be sure to subscribe, share, and review on your favorite podcast platform.
You can also find us on social media by looking up the handle at WNS Different or We're Not So Different on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can also join us live on Instagram or check out our previous live episodes on IGTV by following us at WNS Different. If you have comments, questions, or thoughts, feel free to email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.